The empathy for the characters has nothing to do with their story. I did not want to go through the dialogue, tell the story of my characters. The problem is not who they are, who they pretend to be, or where they come from. The only question I was interested in was, will they get out of it? Will they be killed by the next bomb while trying to join the mole? Or will they be crushed by a boat while crossing? Christopher Nolan. It is a film that is unlike any other war film before it. Some would call it an experience rather than a movie. It is a film critics called his best to date. Peter Bradshaw of The Guardian noted that its director, quote, surrounds his audience with chaos and horror from the onset and amazing images and dazzling accomplished set pieces on a huge 70 millimeter screen, particularly the pontoon crammed with soldiers extending into the churned sea, exposed to enemy aircraft. It is a film that was nearly 20 years in the making, but only shot when the director thought he could do the story absolute justice. This is Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk. You're listening to Film Survey with J.G. Murphy. I am your host, J.G. Every week, we explore the history and themes of some of the greatest films in cinema history. But instead of randomly picking films week in and week out, we look at a certain theme and multiple films that are linked by that theme, sort of like a college course. Our current season is entitled, We Shall Never Surrender, England's History on the Silver Screen. This show is part of TMK Pictures' family of podcasts. For more content, please visit our website, www.tmkpictures.com, and our YouTube channel. Just look for The Green Clover. Well, did you miss me? I apologize for my absence last week, as I had some other matters to attend to. I try not to allow this to happen, but delays sometimes cannot be avoided. At any rate, I am here now and have brought you what I think is an extremely multi-layered film. I remember seeing Dunkirk in theaters, and it was a surreal experience. I actually felt like I was being thrust in the middle of this war. I felt just as isolated as the people who are depicted on the screen. Now, I'll have to say straight up, I don't think it holds up on a second viewing. It's a completely different experience watching it at home on your television than it is seeing it in a theater. Now, obviously, this is true for just about every single movie ever made. But because home viewing has become the go-to way to watch movies, the advent of streaming really pushed that into the forefront, we've forgotten what the theater-going experience is like. The current pandemic hasn't helped all that much either. But... It's still very possible to enjoy a movie at home as much as you would have in a movie theater. That is not the case for Dunkirk. I felt as if this movie was made specifically just to watch in a dark room with a giant screen and state-of-the-art surround sound. It all makes sense given how Christopher Nolan was so intent on releasing Tenet in theaters this year. Some may think of it as a snobbish ideal, but I applaud Nolan for this effort. As far as I can tell, he was willing to wait until the pandemic was over to release Tenet in theaters. He is an artist who recognizes the dying industry that is the movie-going experience. He wants to make movies that make people think, oh, I have to buy a ticket for that. 
So while Dunkirk may not hold up when watching it at home, it is good to remember that Nolan doesn't want you watching this at home. Without further ado, let's get into the history of this film, the story of the evacuation at Dunkirk, and how Christopher Nolan rose to become one of film's most prominent auteurs of the modern era. The Dunkirk evacuation, also known as Operation Dynamo, occurred between May 26th and June 4th of 1940. During the six-week Battle of France, British, Belgian, and French forces were cut off and surrounded by German troops. Hitler had the Allies pinned down, and he sent the Luftwaffe to finish off the British on May 24th. The goal was to trap the Allied forces from escaping across the Channel back to Britain. At 1530 hours on May 26th, Hitler ordered the Panzer groups to continue their advance. But most units didn't attack for another 16 hours. This gave the Allies time to prepare defenses vital for evacuation and prevented the Germans from stopping the retreat from Lille. Many consider the failure to order an assault on Dunkirk to be one of the biggest mistakes the Germans made on the Western Front. At that point, Hitler's forces had overwhelmed the Allied forces, and they were on the ropes. But this is considered by many to be a turning point in the war. It didn't lead to immediate victory, but it gave the Allied forces hope. This gave the British time to mobilize RAF air support, while the Royal Navy deployed ships to help with the evacuation. However, on May 28th, the Belgian army surrendered, leaving a large gap to the east of Dunkirk. So, British troops had to be used to defend that side. On May 29th, 47,310 British troops were rescued despite a heavy barrage from the Luftwaffe. The British destroyer HMS Grenade was sunk and the French destroyer Mistral was crippled. British destroyers Jaguar and Verity were able to escape the harbor despite being damaged. On May 30th, Captain William Tennant ordered evacuations through the use of the east and west moles. The moles were not designed to dock ships, but it was the only way at that point. Almost 200,000 troops were rescued from the East Mole. In total, 338,226 troops had been evacuated from the beach. A prominent part of this story were the deployment of speedboats, Thames vessels, car ferries, and pleasure yachts. They mostly carried soldiers to bigger ships, but their usage proved extremely important to the operation. It should be also noted that many of the smaller ships were crewed by civilians, as forces were dealing with a personnel shortage. In every sense of the word, the operation was, as Winston Churchill put it, a miracle. Christopher Nolan was born on July 30th, 1970, in Westminster, London. Nolan's childhood was split between London and Evanston, Illinois, as his mother was American. In 1998, Nolan released his first feature, Following, which was made on just 3,000 pounds. 
most of the cast and crew were friends of Nolan, and shooting took place on weekends over a period of a year. In order to conserve film stock, each scene was rehearsed extensively, so they wouldn't have to shoot more than two takes. Critics said it echoed Hitchcock, and it won numerous awards at film festivals. The success of following led Nolan to make a movie based on an idea his younger brother Jonathan had pitched to him. It would be a crime drama about a man with anterograde amnesia trying to find his wife's killer. Memento would prove to be his breakthrough. With its non-linear storytelling and praise not only from critics, but from scientists who praised his accuracy of portraying memory loss on screen. The film attracted filmmaker Steven Soderbergh, and Soderbergh offered Nolan to direct the American remake of Insomnia. He would develop several projects over the next couple of years, but his most ambitious project was fast approaching. In early 2003, Nolan approached Warner Brothers with the idea of revamping Batman. He pitched a grounded world more reminiscent of classic drama rather than the fantastical world of comic books. His gamble paid off, and Batman Begins was a critical and commercial success. Nolan was nearly single-handedly credited for revitalizing the character in the public's eyes after the abysmal release of Batman and Robin in 1997. It showed the world that comic book films could be taken seriously and be dealt with in a more mature scope rather than the campy matter that had befallen the genre in recent years. After another successful film, The Prestige, Nolan would return to the world of Batman and direct the highly anticipated sequel, The Dark Knight. Highlighted by the Academy Award-winning performance of Heath Ledger as the legendary villain The Joker, The Dark Knight took Batman and the comic book genre to a place never before seen with its dark and grim atmosphere. Nolan would then direct his most popular non-Batman film, Inception. Praised for its visual effects and surreal storytelling, Inception was again a hit at the box office and among critics. This would be followed by his most controversial film, The Dark Knight Rises. Listen, I'm not going to get into it. That would take an entire episode. I'm only going to say that I like the movie. There, I said it. Rage tweet at me if you must. After the Dark Knight trilogy, Nolan had established himself as a new kind of director. The blockbuster Artur. See, his films are not only complex and filmed with thematic qualities, they also make a lot of money. People love to see his high-concept works because they're also entertaining. And that's where we see a new Nolan. With the release of Interstellar, he showed he was not afraid to ask bigger questions. What is going to happen to us when this world is no longer inhabitable? Like Spielberg, Nolan is able to tell incredibly grand stories that are, at the heart of them, about relationships between human beings. But enough about me gushing over Christopher Nolan. We're now up to date and have come to the film of the hour, Dunkirk. Our story continues in a moment. And now, back to the show.
The one complaint about Christopher Nolan is that he really hits you over the head when it comes to themes, and Dunkirk is no different. The film has several interlaced themes, but what I want to focus on today are survival, fear, and honor. Well, it's a war film about being evacuated, so the whole film is about survival, right? Okay, yes. But it is what survival does to the characters of this film that makes it interesting. We have our main character, Tommy. Tommy wants nothing more than to get off the beach. He wants to go home. He tries to find any way of getting there. First, he tries to blend in with those carrying stretchers of wounded soldiers to the ships. He is ultimately unsuccessful in his attempt, but he tries time and time again to sneak onto ships. In fact, he ends up sneaking onto a ship with Gibson and Alex, only for that ship to be torpedoed. All three are then forced to go back to Dunkirk because there aren't enough lifeboats for the soldiers. One lifeboat they interact with is led by Killian Murphy's character, but we'll get to him later. We should also discuss the character of Gibson here. Gibson is a mysterious character whom Tommy comes upon burying someone. Here, we get a very brief glimpse at what Gibson will be revealed to be later. We see that the man he is burying does not have a shoe on his foot. We then see Gibson tying his bootlaces. So early in the film, no one would think a thing about that moment. As the film progresses, it is apparent that Gibson hasn't said a single word, pointed out by Alex when they're holed up in a boat that's being shot at by German soldiers. Nolan set this up perfectly by not having Tommy speak for a large part at the beginning of the film. We don't even question Gibson's lack of speaking because we assume everyone else is too occupied with survival that they don't speak to each other. But in that moment, when Alex outs him, we are forced to wonder about Gibson's true identity. It is first suggested that he's a German spy by none other than Alex. Tommy says that cannot be and tries to get Gibson to tell the other British soldiers the truth. When he finally speaks, it is revealed he's French and he took the identity of a British soldier in hopes of fleeing France. Gibson's survival is his most daring, and it ends up being costly. As the others do not seem to trust him, they leave him stranded behind in the boat as it fills with water, killing him. His secrecy is ultimately what led to his demise. This leads us to another theme of the film, fear. Fear is what caused Tommy to effectively kill Gibson. Fear made him not trust a single person and pay close attention to those around him. He realized Gibson was the only one that was aloof and didn't really fit in with the others. He probably realized that Gibson was the only soldier who stayed outside of the ship that eventually went down while everyone else was inside eating. Now, Gibson didn't summon German forces, we know that. We know he was the one that opened the door for the drowning soldiers to flee the sinking ship. But Alex does not know that, and he draws conclusions from it. When they're inside the boat being shot at, we are forced to ask ourselves what Gibson's true intentions are, because we fear for the lives of Alex and Tommy. Let's also consider Killian Murphy's character, simply known as Shivering Soldier. We are first introduced to him when he's picked up by Mr. Dawson, Peter, and George on their yacht. 
When he finds out that they're going to Dunkirk, he pleads with them to turn the boat around. He tells them this is no place for them, that they should be at home. As we later find out, he nearly died when his lifeboat capsized. He does not want to face death again and probably wants nothing more than to flee the war entirely. And that leads us to our final theme, honor. Mr. Dawson finds himself called to helping the soldiers at Dunkirk out. Though the Navy appears to be commandeering boats from civilians, Dawson, his son Peter, and their hand George find it best if they take the boat themselves. Dawson recognizes the troubles the shell-shocked soldier is going through, as it is later revealed that his oldest son is also fighting in the war. Dawson feels it is his duty to go rescue soldiers, as it is what his son would have done had he been in his place. If not, the war comes to Britain with no help to defend it. That sense of British pride is what motivates him even after the tragic death of George. The RAF pilot Ferrier also shows honor as well as sacrifice when he puts all of his efforts into stopping the Luftwaffe from attacking the men on the beach. He is able to successfully down multiple dive bombers while running on a low tank of gas. His sense of honor and duty ultimately lead to his capture by German forces, but it was for the right cause, and he has little regrets in doing so. Christopher Nolan is able to skillfully tell this story with extreme attention to detail and by weaving three separate timelines into one succinct plot. Although it does take a viewing or two to completely understand what is going on and how the timelines work, it is still a great achievement. By interweaving this non-linear plot, all three timelines are able to converge at the same time at the end and crescendo together. It is unorthodox, but that's exactly what makes this stand apart from other war films. I could spend a good amount of time talking about Hoyt Van Hoytema's cinematography, but I'd go on for far too long. All I can say is, go and watch the other films he has worked on. His sense of lighting is always spot on, and his camera placement, specifically locking cameras down to vehicles, is particularly captivating. Hans Zimmer wrote the score for this film, and he comes through yet again. In his work with Christopher Nolan, he has understood how important the concept of time is. Here, he uses the ticking clock not to remind us that time is not on our hero's side, but to increase tension. The clock will tick, but as danger draw nears, he increases the speed of the ticking, thus elevating our heartbeats. Yet another tactic to put the audience directly in the shoes of the men finding a way home. The cast assembled for this film is very interesting and ultimately extremely effective. The best war films are starting to trend towards using little-known actors in their protagonist roles, as it makes it easier for the audience to see them as just a normal person instead of an actor playing a soldier. Fionn Whitehead holds his own here as he expertly toes the line of morality. At one point, he is trying to get out by any means possible. At another point, he puts others in front of him. Tom Hardy, Killian Murphy, Jack Lowden, and Kenneth Branagh all give fantastic performances 
as they most often do. The person that truly surprised me was Harry Styles. I'll admit, I was shocked to hear he had been cast in this film. And I might have thought, what are you doing, Chris? But the move paid off, as Styles really does make you forget the music phenom he is, and you are quick to accept him as the character he portrays. Next week, we will continue our exploration of English history through film by looking at what was going on in England during Operation Dynamo with Darkest Hour. Thank you for stopping by on this week's episode of Film Survey. This show is researched, written, and hosted by myself, J.G. Murphy, and is part of the TMK Pictures family of podcasts. If you would like to view a transcript of this episode, it will be available on thefilmsurveypodcast.com. If you would like to share your thoughts with me on this film, make sure to follow at Film Survey Podcast on Instagram, or you can shoot me a message at the JG Murphy on Twitter. You can also email me directly at jgmurphy at tmkpictures.com. It is possible I may share your thoughts with the rest of the community. I host another podcast, Obscurities of the Silver Screen, with my dear friend and colleague, Remy Gray. Episodes are available on Anchor or wherever you get your podcasts. Please be sure to check out more of TMK's content, including Space Stuff, Look Mono Helmet, and Inner Idiot Child. All shows are free to watch on TMK's YouTube channel. Just look for The Green Clover. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to next week's discussion.